Uh, good evening. Um, my name is Jason. Uh, I work here. And uh, welcome to the house. I'm glad you guys are with us on Tuesday night. If it's your first time here, um, welcome. I don't know. I just said that. Uh, I'm glad you're here. A uh, couple things I just don't want you guys to forget with announcement stuff earlier. Um, please remember that next week we actually do have uh, something on Tuesday night. Um, I, if I remember correctly, y'all have classes off on Wednesday. Is that correct? Do you guys? Yeah, classes are off. So I understand many of you guys will go home, and typically what that means is it's a, a bit of a smaller, more intimate night for us. And, and so, um, like they announced up front earlier, we'll be doing stuff in the hub uh, downstairs, which is just down here. Um, and that's, for many people, it's, it's one of their favorite um, Tuesday nights of the year. Uh, it's a little bit different, a little more intimate. Um, I'd encourage you to stick around uh, and have some fun with us. If, also, if you don't have a place to celebrate Thanksgiving um, in this next week, uh, shoot me a message or something. You can come to my house. Uh, we'll hang out. Um, I got some food for you or something. Um, and then also the week after that, um, we have actually one more Tuesday night before finals week. Um, and we're actually going to dedicate that to, to being a little bit about Christmas and Advent. So um, we're going to kind of finish up a series tonight. We'll go into something special next week. And then the week after that, we'll do something in this room uh, with regards to Advent. And what does it look like to, to sort of be on the lookout for Jesus over the holiday season and that kind of thing. We'll sing some Christmas songs. I haven't even checked this with the worship team. I think we'll sing Christmas songs. If not, you can send me a message. We'll sing Christmas songs at my house. Um, something like this. But um, anyway, a couple other things I just want to let you know about. And this is just is more announcements, and, and I actually want to preface it by saying this. Um, those of us that work on staff, we, we don't really see the, the ministry, uh, the college ministry called the house. We don't really see that um, as primarily like this event thing, like when people ask us what we're about and what we do. Like, like all, the, all of our operating budget, for example, just comes from, by donations. Um, and people often will ask us when we ask for donations, what do you do? And, and we never uh, sort of measure our success by an event. People will be like, how many people come on Tuesday night? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. We never count. I mean, ballpark, you know. Uh, and you can see them kind of get frustrated sometimes with that. And um, we really see this ministry. I mean, I say this the first couple weeks of the school year, but in case you missed it, um, we see this as a discipleship ministry. We see this as something where we really want you to be known and know Jesus. And we want to walk alongside you or have people here walk alongside each other in this role of discipleship. Um, and, and the stuff that we announce, like the events that we do, um, they aren't our primary focus, but it's just really hard to get to meet other people if you don't ever gather at all. Um, and there are some events that meet very particular purposes. So as an example, coming up this Saturday uh, at 10.30, right, Abby? Prayer team folks, 10.30 on Saturday? 10.30 Saturday morning. Where are we meeting for the prayer huddle thing? Chamberlain Field at 10.30. Um, so I think this has largely been spearheaded by our prayer team here, but it's in, uh, they're in sort of cahoots with a bunch of other campus ministries on campus. Um, it'll be a time for praying for the campus, for the city, for our country. It'll be a time of, of unity amongst a lot of campus ministries. I hear a lot of students year after year say, hey, our campus ministry should do stuff together. If that's something that's on your heart, Saturday at 10.30. Um, show up at Chamberlain Field. You can meet here probably 10 minutes before if you want to find somebody to walk down with or something. But um, I think there'll even be some food and stuff there. Uh, but, but I encourage you to go um, and check that out. So on 1030 on Saturday. Um, and then also I'm announcing this real early, partly because it's like signups are two weeks after we get back from school. Um, there's something called the, a discernment retreat that we host every year, January 13th or 16th. Um, that's largely funded by um, the Lilly Endowment. So it's actually really cheap, 25 bucks for the weekend. Um, it's sort of like, what do you want to do with your life? What's the deal with calling and work? How do you know what you're supposed to major in? Um, much like some of the stuff I'm saying tonight, God is not trying to hide all those things from you most of the time. Um, and so um, it, there's a lot of people that went last year. Um, I can just set you up with them to see if, uh, I, I don't know what that phrase means today. I can connect you with them uh, in order to, uh, to sort of just find out if you think that they think it's worth your time. Um, it was an awesome weekend last year and I'd encourage you to sign up. We got 10 spots for guys, 10 for, for women. Um, that's it. So it's limited space. There's a sign up in the back afterwards if you want to sign up. It's Martin Luther King weekend. So um, signups are now first 10 to pay get there. So, okay. Um, uh, before I, I get into the sermon tonight too, I just want to spend a moment praying with you guys. So uh, there's a bunch of us that gather at like 7, yeah, 15 uh, to pray on Tuesday nights for the night and for you and everything like that. Um, but, but I just have had it on my heart all day to just when we've gathered all together to pray again for, for what's happening in our city right now. Um, 
not only because we ought to, but also because it's probably just really nice to remember that even uh, this college campus is, is not actually a, sort of this um, independent biosphere. Like it exists within the context of a city and in the nation and in the world. Um, and, and it's really, really helpful, I think, for us to lift our eyes to the horizons and look around us and pray for these things. So um, right now there's like a real problem with no rain in our city and there's fires everywhere and um, it's like disruptive in all sorts of ways. I was told today that a couple people lost their homes. Um, I know like my kids at elementary school, they don't even have recess right now because they don't wanna go outside and breathe the smoke. Um, you guys all probably sit inside and watch Netflix all day or something, so you probably don't go outside. But, uh, but the, uh, it's really, really a problem. And, and one of the things that sort of struck me this week is how often um, ancient, the ancient Near Eastern cultures and, and sort of the, the Hebrew people are one among them, they prayed so often for rain because like for all, for all of our technological advances, we just can't control the weather. You know, and this is something that, that the people of God look to God for, um, and we ask him to send rain. So I want, I want to pray for rain with you guys today, if that's all right. Well, actually, even if it's not, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, you can leave. Um, I'd love for you to pray with me. <laughs> I'd love for you to pray with me. I don't actually want you to leave. <laughs> okay, let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, I also, I pray that people stay uh, and hear your word preached. <laughs> um, I also, I pray that I preach it, um, that you guard my lips and my mouth and that the meditations of my heart and the way that we receive your word and listen to your word and, 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 uh, and meditate on, on what you have said and what you teach tonight, that it would be pleasing to you, that you would um, that you'd redeem it and take it in. And we also pray um, that you would send rain on our city, that you'd look out for the, the families and care for the families that don't have homes, that you'd call your church and other people, maybe some of us in this room, to care for them in, in some way. But, Father, we can't bring rain. We can't make it happen. Uh, we, we just ask that you would. Um, I think it's been 26 days without rain so far. And um, I know there's people in the city. We can't light fires in our backyards. And that, that's a small problem. Um, but there's kids who can't go out to recess. And there's people who've lost their homes. And um, it just it creates uh, all sorts of inconveniences and anxiety and even danger. Uh, we, would, we would love your help. I don't know what the weather patterns say. I think we're looking at another 15 days or so before it might rain again. Um, bring it sooner. We ask you in the name of Jesus to do this for our city. Um, amen. Amen, amen. All right, so uh, tonight we're going to close out a bit of a series. Uh, I've been mindful this week of, of the fact that uh, there's this season that's coming up, and, and maybe you think it's already happening. I don't know. Uh, so I don't know. I got into the car last week and my wife was playing a Christmas song and I was furious. Um, and it's not because I don't like Christmas music. I actually love Christmas music. Uh, and I think there's actually a whole sermon buried in this somewhere. But, but in order to guard my love for that, I need to relegate it to a very particular season. Do you know what I mean? Like I, if we start, if we keep creeping back into like October and September and August, I think I'm not going to love it for long. And so I want to guard it. And so that, that time is very specific. As soon as Thanksgiving dinner is over, we can play Christmas music, you know? That's very, very specific. Uh, anyway, that's a dynamic my wife and I are working through. Um, but, the, but the point is, the point is, like, I'm seeing things like this starting to show up. You know, I go to the, the stores and the holiday aisle is Christmas stuff already. I know that season's coming up. And the songs that we sing and the way we talk about Christmas leads me to believe, and I, I think this is probably true, that, that what we all want is, is uh, you know, something shiny. We want, we want peace. We want joy. We want bells to ring and angels to sing and all these, whatever, those kinds of things that the songs are, are about. We want comfort and warmth and homes and gifts exchanged and, you know, big dinner tables with laughter and stories. And we want all of those things. And, and I'm, but I'm also mindful that so many of us don't experience that over the holidays. <laughs> like we don't experience very much of it. Uh, family dynamics are typically a wreck. It seems like it. Maybe that's not the norm, but it sure seems like it's the norm for a lot of people. The rhythms of our lives, like if you've been in college and you've got like a whole month off, like the, the rhythm or more, I don't know, the, the rhythm of your life totally changes. And although you might look forward to something like that, like sweet no finals, none of that stuff, it, it's like you change when your rhythms change. And it can be unsettling, you know, like, like three weeks of escaping into some sort of monotony doesn't actually feel good in the end, you know, kind of thing. And um, and, and weather stuff is different. Like nights are longer for the next month. So it's like literally darker in our lives. And then weather gets colder. And the whole season to me feels like a fight against like dark in different ways. 
Like I think about like our lights and our fires and our meals and our songs and so much of it feels like a pressing against, like it feels like a creating this like, space all the time to keep out the stuff that's around us that might be uh, sort of more negative, you know, or, or harder for us to deal with. And, and I had this sort of, this image like we're, we're trying to defy the dark and the cold and the silence and the loneliness throughout the holiday seasons. And, and all of our celebration to me right now just sort of seems like this act of defiance, which in some ways is really beautiful and kind of poetic and all that kind of stuff, but it also is very different than just like, let's play Christmas carols and have a blast. Like, like I'm now talking about a fight, you know? It's very different. Maybe that's too strong for some of you, I don't know, okay? But I know that for many of us in, in, in the holiday season, like many of us in this room in the holiday season, um, it's a bit of a trial for our peace and it's a bit of a trial for our identity. If you have changed some over the course of this semester, over the course of college, going home to your family of origin can often be pretty difficult. So it doesn't matter what I, that I'm the director of a nonprofit, the father of children, married to this, uh, married way up, uh, just up. Um, she's actually shorter, but you know what I mean? Um, it doesn't matter that I'm a pastor, it doesn't matter. I go home to like my family of origin places. I'm the oldest kid. You know, I'm the, I, I did these things in middle school and I acted this way when I was five. And like, those are the primary points of focus and identity. And, and many of you in college are experiencing that in college for the first time, right? Because up until now, many of you have lived in your family of origins place. And then when you go to college, it's the first time that you do most of your development away and then you come back home. And when you come back home, you often, many of us are not received in the ways that we've grown. We're received kind of as, sort of as the people we were when we left. And that can be really challenging for identity for many of us. Um, I also know that, that many of you are exhausted right now. That came up quite a bit in this prayer circle uh, that was happening at 7.15-ish. Uh, and, uh, and I think Kirsten or somebody mentioned, or maybe it was me or something, was like, man, you guys are always exhausted. Like, is this uniquely more exhausted? And everybody was like, yes, this is uniquely more exhausted. Um, and so, so, like, tonight I just have this, like, I, I really just a sense of compassion for you guys, I guess. And... Um, in some ways, I'd want to sort of punt this, this sermon two weeks down the road where the only thing you're looking at is finals week and going home, uh, but I, I really want that night to, to just be a big celebration and, and uh, Advent thing. So, um, so I'm going to have this thing now, and I'm hoping you can kind of hold on to some of these truths for the holiday season coming up, all right? So um, I, I want to talk primarily tonight about what it would look like for you to know that God is for you and with you over the holidays because I think that that can be difficult to experience, especially in a season when everybody's saying, like everybody who's a Christian at least is saying, like Chick-fil-A is saying that, uh, that God is with us, like Emmanuel sort of language, right? God is with us. And yet I think it can actually be really hard to believe sometimes. I bet you if statistics were, were, were done, like somebody did the data, every time a sermon was preached about this kind of stuff tonight, every time somebody talks about the assurance of salvation, or your confidence in being a Christian, I think more people doubt than feel comforted. You know? Like it's just kind of like when, when the expectation is sort of pressed on us, uh, it can sometimes feel like we're supposed to like go along with this and then we start to recognize all the ways we don't. And I, and I wonder if during Christmas when all the talk was about God in our midst, if it can be hard for us to feel his presence and feel him close. And so tonight is largely about this. Like I, I want to talk with you guys about um, how God plans on us knowing confidently that he is for us and with us. He's not trying to keep that hidden. And so I wanna talk about that tonight and I wanna to try to make that as simple as possible. It's gonna be a little theology more than storytelling and that kind of stuff tonight. But, um, but we're gonna start by, by revisiting a passage uh, from Paul's letter to Titus. That's kind of how this, this uh, about four week, five week series got started. I wanna read that real quick and just uh, point out something in it. Would you throw that up, Ashley? Titus chapter two, verses 11 through 14. Um, it's in a section of a bunch of T's in your Bible near the end. Um, Paul says this to Titus, for the grace of God has appeared. Okay, so what does that mean? What's the grace of God appearing? Anybody know? This is it, dude. This is the Sunday school answer. Jesus, right. So for the grace of God has appeared. It's Jesus. Bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
If you just keep that up just for a minute. So, so as a whole, if you really, uh, we spent the whole week, five weeks ago or six weeks ago or something, uh, unpacking this whole thing. And so if you want to listen to that, you can find it on the podcast on iTunes or something. Um, I want to specifically just talk about one idea here for a bit before we jump into the main text for tonight. And that's this idea of, uh, let's see, where is it? Second line down, uh, of the grace of God training us, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. That the grace of God, Jesus himself, not only does he bring salvation to all people, or maybe this is even included in what bringing people to salvation means, he's training us to sort of put off, or put off, put off, uh, to put off. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I had a whole co- we had some conversation on staff this last week. We were up in New York City, and I, I totally just pick up the way people talk when I'm around them. And so, like, my wife can actually always tell exactly who I'm speaking to um, by hearing my voice on the phone. Uh, so I don't know, I don't know whose that was. But, um, but, but, but the grace of God, Jesus is training us to put off and to put on, to stop things and to start things, to repent is a word that captures both of it. To repent literally means to turn around 180 degrees, Turning away from, turning toward something. This is something that we who are Christians are being trained in. When Jesus appeared, when he brought salvation to all people, some of what he was doing is training us. Training us. And many of us, I suspect, and this was largely the focus of the first week of this five-week series, many of us are not experiencing what we want to experience in our faith. Precisely because we've never showed up for training. Many of us are not experiencing what we want to experience precisely because we've never shown up for training. The way I worded it a few weeks back is I said that many of us want what what we can only have in the context of discipleship without ever intending to become disciples of Jesus. And and sort of the, the image that I was using as a metaphor for that was this image of a fire And saying that for many of us that call ourselves Christians, we've been trained sort of this way maybe or something, I don't really know. Um, But but that there's this fire and and many of us would agree that there is one and that it gives off warmth and that it gives off light. We would agree essentially that it exists and the properties of that thing. Maybe we could answer questions on a test or something, I don't know. But we, we stand so far away from it maybe 10 feet, maybe 100 yards. I don't know. It doesn't matter once you start getting past 10 feet. I, you, you don't feel the warmth of it even though you know it's warm. But you're standing in the dark, so the light from the fire doesn't even, it's not even bright enough on you so that you can be known or, or experience what that looks like to be seen in that context. And, and many times when there's fires lit, there's community that gathers around a fire. And if you're standing far away, you aren't going to be in the presence of that community either. And, and these things that you might be able to recognize and notice about that fire, you don't get to experience if you're not standing close to it. And I know that's a metaphor. I'm sure it breaks down in certain places, but I was trying to sort of cast some kind of image to talk about the difference between sort of a profession of faith, an intellectual agreement with theological statements versus act discipleship, which literally means to be a student, to try to become like, to sit under the teaching of and, and to learn from and to become like. That's what disciple means. And, then the, and I think that the image of the fire is probably a good metaphor for that. That there's this difference between recognizing that it exists and actually drawing close to it. And I think what many of us actually want is all of what happens when we're close to it, but we're standing far away going, why don't I feel what they feel? Why don't I know what they know? Why don't I experience what they experience? And I suspect, friends, it's just that we're standing far away. And the invitation is for us to draw close. We want to feel the effects of the fire, but we haven't drawn close. So we want to know if God let me take it into the specific topic tonight. We want to know that God is, f- I want to know God is for me. Not just intellectually, theoretically. I want to know intimately that God is for me and with me. I, and, and if you have been had by God, then you too want to know that. That's like a, fa- that's a fact. If the Spirit of God is in you, then you want those same things that I want. How do we experience that? How do we know God is for us and with us? How do we experience him in our midst? And, and tonight I want to talk about what it looks like to draw close so that we might actually experience that. That's the passage that we're looking at tonight. It's going to be specifically about that. Let, let's pray real quick for this passage too and, and as we hear about it. Father, um, continue to look out for us. I ask that your spirit would be on the move tonight, um, opening our eyes and ears to, to receive this truth. And um, 
Uh, may you bring hearts to life tonight and may you bring many people into your kingdom, many sons and daughters in. And may, may, we, um, may we truly experience the, the presence of your spirit. May we know that you are for us and with us. May none of your children have to walk out of this room tonight with anxiety, wondering. And may anybody in this room who's not a Christian, may they know that the invitation is open to them. We ask for these things in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna look at a passage from 1 John tonight. Um, John wrote this, uh, this letter uh, to help Christians believe. He says this like, almost word for word. He wrote it to help them believe in the name of the Son of God that they may know that they have eternal life. Okay, right near the end of the letter, this is what he says. I wrote this to you in order that you might believe in the name of the Son of God so that you know that you have eternal life. This is one of the reasons I was clued into this passage of Scripture when I was thinking about this topic. <laughs> uh, John wrote the whole letter to address this, so I highly recommend that you just read the whole thing. Um, it's going to come up a bit, probably as I can, if I continue in college ministry, it's come up every year, I think, for the past five years. Um, uh, but, so, but John was concerned for their confidence of these Christians who, who live together in this community. Um, he, was, he was concerned not just for their confidence, I guess, but also for their devotion. He was concerned for their assurance. Are we Christians? Are we, have we got it right does God really love us? Do we miss the mark somewhere? How do we know that the Spirit of God is in our midst and present? How do we know it's, He's in us and not in them when they're, they're sort of arguing against us over these truths? And then what's our life supposed to look like in response to that? Confidence and devotion. These are the two things John was very worried about, or worried is a strong word. He was concerned about, and he wanted to assure them and help them to have confidence in the eternal life that they had. So he wanted them to be full of hope and conviction, right? So we're gonna zoom in on one particular piece of it and, and sort of walk through it together and I'm gonna pull out three implications for us in terms of what God wants us to know about him being for us and with us, right? So this is from 1 John uh, chapter three. Um, chapter three is one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. That the first three verses are just amazing. Uh, oh, but we're not talking about those. We're talking about uh, verses 16 through 24. So this is uh, the ESV version. Um, uh, when I come across the word brothers, uh, that in the Greek it's actually plural for brothers and sisters. Anyway, First um, John chapter 3. He says, By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. Who's he? Yes, Jesus. Man, you guys are two for two. Uh, so by this we know, love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. The reason he doesn't say Jesus there is this is in the middle of a conversation, right? This is a letter that he wrote to a group of people, and I'm just taking one little piece of it, and that is sometimes sort of dangerous if you don't read the whole context of the thing, right? So um, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. That's how we know love. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers or brothers and sisters, which literally it, it translates to the people of God, the church. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, would you go back to the very beginning of that, Ashley? I'm gonna um, just walk through it and unpack a couple of things. It's pretty loaded context here, and there's some stuff going on that I wanna tease out before I, I sort of just say, hey, here's these three points I want us to take away, okay? So we're just gonna walk kind of through it verse by verse a little bit. So verse 16 says, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So first thing I wanna point out, love is specific. Okay, for the Christian, biblically, love is specific. It's not self-defining. When you, we, we don't get to say love, um, I, I don't wanna get political on this. Okay, uh, a lot of people, anyway. Uh, okay, um, nothing is self-defining but God himself. That's a good way for me to say this, okay? Um, the, only, the only thing in all of, of everything that exists that's self-defining is God. Everything else is contingent and is understood in relationship to God. It is, as an example, creation, not creator. 
But God is sort of even self-defining in himself. So anyway, the, the point is this. Love is specific. It's not an idea. It's not a feeling for the Christian. Love is first and foremost a person, Jesus. That's, that's what love is. That's who love is. This is how we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Love is first a person. God has shown us love in Jesus. The implication for that is very, very big, and this might get teased out a little bit later too, that we don't just get to decide what we think love looks like. When Jesus commanded his disciples to love one another, he commanded them to love like he loves. Not only is love himself specific, but when he commands us to love, he, he categorizes that, he boundaries that by saying, you want to know what it means to love? Love like I have loved. So if you think, well, this is how I really want to love people, that, that, that might be fine, but the, but the Christian needs to ask, is that submitted to the idea of how God intends for you to love? Do you mean the same thing God means, or are you just deciding that you're going to do something comfortable for you, that feels good for you, that other people need to receive well, or else it's their problem? Or something like this. You know, I mean, I'm trying to, I'm being really negative, I guess, when I say that. But um, my point here is that love is not self-defining. Uh, like, we don't get to define it ourselves. Like that. It is, it is rooted in a person in Jesus. And, and when we know love, what we know is actually God showing us what love is in Jesus. God has shown us love. This is where everything starts for the Christian. Our knowledge of love is rooted in history. It's not rooted in our ideas or our feelings. It's rooted in history. It's in the person of Jesus, what he did, what he's doing, what he will do. And it's public. Everybody can see it. Everybody can, it's on display. It's not hidden. Love is in Jesus. And because John knows that Jesus asked us to become like him, Jesus asked us to become like him. If you didn't know, that's kind of the context of discipleship that we keep hitting for the past few weeks. John knows that, that Jesus wants us to be like him. And so when he says, we know love because Jesus showed us love and how he laid down his life for us, we're supposed to be like him and imitate his kind of love. So we should be doing what he did. We should lay down our lives for others. Let me move, let me move past that. I'll come back to it later. Uh, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? I love this because when you say something as lofty and as big, as this is what love is, laying your life down for your friend. This is how we should love like Jesus did when he laid his life down for us. It's so like lofty and big that, that it, it, um, I guess in some sense, when you begin to take it down into verse 17, this next one here, having the world's needs, maybe that sounds less romantic to you or something because now you're talking about like the neediness of one person or something. But, but I wonder if, it, if John just made it more difficult for us. Because I think sometimes it can be easy for us to romanticize a love we have for the world's problems. Like I could sit at home and read a news article and I can even cry reading about the poverty that exists or the abuses that exist in the world. But because the problem is so big and I'm so little, I often don't feel convicted to do anything about it except for cry. Praying is wonderful and that might be it too. But I wonder if it would be harder for us literally harder for us to, to come in contact with somebody on the side of the street who's homeless and wondering what to do when this person says, would you help me please? If we actually just left a computer screen where we were tweeting about or, or whatever the thing is, I don't know what you guys use social media wise, but you make some comment about how we all need to get our stuff together to address this problem globally. But then I walk by this one person or my roommate or my mother or whatever, my friend, is in need. And I, I don't have compassion for this one individual, but I somehow have compassion for the world. And I wonder if John had a sense of wisdom in this and saying like, if, that maybe it's wise for him to follow up, lay down your life for people with, hey, that sort of is the capstone and the framework for all the ways that we ought to love. So to give you an idea, maybe you should do your dishes for your roommate. And you're like, no, dude, I'd rather die for them. I don't know, <laughs> but I don't know. Uh, but but, but I, I just really think that this is really wise of John to, to, to bring this down to, to, quite frankly, a more day-to-day -day level because all of us are not actually going to be called to literally give up our lives for somebody else. Some of us will be. Maybe not some of us in this room, I don't know. But there are people today who have done that today as Christians in the world. So I know that that exists, 
But history leads me to believe, and the scriptures sort of leave room for this, I think, that not every single one of us will be called to sort of a premature death and martyrdom on the sake of somebody else. Some of us might be. And so I don't want to read that big thing and go, well, if God calls me to that, great. But in the meantime, I'm going to, you know, keep on keeping on and do my thing, you know? Uh, so I love that John takes it down here. And, and if you see somebody in need close to you, John says, and you close your heart against that person, especially a brother or sister in the church. Let me say that again, because this is specifically about Christians with Christians. If you close your heart to them, isn't that a sign that God's love isn't in you? So John says, he moves on to say, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Love is primarily action, friends. I do this exercise, I may have mentioned it before with some, with some folks, um, where we, we talk about how well do you think you love uh, usually with engaged couples. And so how well do you think you love your fiance? And we'll talk about that for a while and how do, you, do they love you, whatever. And then we, we do this exercise where we walk through 1 Corinthians 13. And I don't know if you've ever seen 1 Corinthians 13. It's the greatest love poem ever penned in history. Uh, and Paul has this famous lines, famous lines in, in sort of verses four through eight where he says things like, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. You guys might've heard some of that at weddings or something. But then what I ask people to do is I go, let's say you can't define love however you want to. So when I say, do you love this person well, don't, don't tell me yes to that big generic thing. Let's go through this list of stuff and I want you to tell me how well you do each of these well. So how patient are you with your fiance? How kind are you? Do you believe all things or are you a cynic? Are you easily irritated? Are you rude? Do you rejoice in the wrongdoing of others because it makes you feel better about yourself? And you see how like all of a sudden when you start getting practical and talking about the fruit of love and the actions of love, how that's getting a little closer to home and it begins to be a little more difficult. I can't sort of squirm out of that as easy or, or just brush over it with a gold color. Love is not just talk for Christians. Love is action and deed. It looks specifically Christ-like. It looks specifically Christ-like. Let's not love in talk Say, I love you. I really mean it. Let's love indeed. 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Right? That line's really cool, and I think all it does is it just makes us go, how? Which leads to the next line. For whatever our heart condemns us, for whatever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Do you ever notice that when you try to do something good, evil is at hand? Do you ever notice that when you try to love somebody at the cost to yourself, that another voice enters the picture, that there's a bit of a battle that takes place? John talks about this. Paul talks about this at length, specifically in Romans chapter seven. Every time I try to do good, evil is right there next to me, he says. I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I do want to do. He ends up crying out at the end of Romans chapter seven, saying, who can save me? from this wretched body of death. Keep reading, right? Because it gets beautiful right after that. <laughs> but in, in Romans chapter eight. But, but his experience of dealing with sin and fighting with sin is such that, that Paul recognizes, and John here is articulating much the same thing, that when we set about loving others, our hearts can condemn us. It's not just voices outside of us in the world, even from within. I go about trying to love my roommate and all of a sudden there's this voice that says, man, you don't have time for that today. He's never done anything like that for you. Man, let somebody else do it. I think somebody else can probably do that. Or whatever. I mean, you could go on and on. But the point is, the, the fruit of that voice would lead me to not loving my roommate. And then I'm, I'm condemning myself and my roommate. And so John here is saying that, that, that we should pay attention to this, that, that when um, that we set about loving others, when we set about loving our brothers and sisters in the church, that when our hearts condemn us because they will a lot, there's an inner battle that will come up and that you will have to fight. Even if you just give in quickly, there'll be something happening. There'll be some confluence there. Paul says, or John says, what's, what's great, what brings about assurance, it's not actually the condemnation that brings about assurance. That would be sort of strange to say. What brings about assurance is that God is greater than that. That God is greater than that. I'm reassured 
that when I, my heart begins to condemn me as I'm fighting to love a person, that if God is speaking into that and he wins out over my condemning heart, I am reassured that my heart is not too broken for God to interact with. That my sinful tendencies are not too much for him. That he hasn't abandoned me to my own devices. That my word doesn't need to be the last word. That maybe his word can be. John even goes farther because he says, and God knows everything, basically. Right now you say that? And he knows, yeah, he knows everything. That, that sort of gets to be a little bit negative. John has this habit of sort of always coming at every argument with a positive and a negative and a positive and a negative. And this sounds really daunting to me at first, but he's really, I think, trying to scare us a little bit. Just so you know that that voice that you're wrestling with, God knows it and you're gonna have to answer for it one day. And John's hoping that what that does is it jostles us into a realization that we're not hidden right now. That this thing I'm wrestling with, this, I, I'm supposed to love this person, this, this classmate, this roommate, this parent, this brother, this sister, this ex, this, uh, the, the, what, whoever. I'm supposed to love this person in the church, this brother or sister, and I'm fighting right now to that. And, and it's helpful sometimes for me to know God sees all of this. God sees all, I'm not hidden from him. And what I want, if I could step away from that for just a minute, what I want is actually to have loved that person. And so I'll take anything God can bring. His knowledge that I'm not hidden, his wisdom and his voice inside fighting against the temptations of my own heart so that I might actually love that person. And if that happens, if my heart begins to condemn me and I find that God's voice is actually greater, that God is greater than my heart, that he knows everything and he still decides to move and work in and through me to love a brother? John says that brings about assurance. That brings about such confidence. He's his beloved, he moves on to say, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So sometimes it'll condemn us, sometimes it won't. If our heart doesn't condemn us, if we live like Jesus because of Jesus and, and we find that in this moment, I'm not actually waging like a massive war to do that, I can have confidence that God is working to change me from the inside out because that's not a natural thing to do. That this one's probably pretty basic in the line of the whole thing. If our heart doesn't condemn us when you're loving somebody, have confidence in that, you know? Moving to the end here. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. I, I want you to think about this way. Maybe you thought about this a lot. I don't know. But that God's commandment is like, it's like a two-strand rope. And this is the way Jesus speaks about it. Like, tell me what the greatest command is. What's the greatest law? And he has two answers. And John here does the same thing. He doesn't say this is what Jesus' commandments, plural, are. This is his singular command, and it's twofold which if you know anything about the nature of God, that's very like him. God's commandment is like a two-stranded rope. One strand is belief, belief in Jesus as the Son of God. Now, I don't have time to go into this too much today, okay, but um, <clears throat> I guess we actually do have a sermon about this from a few years ago on um, our podcast too, but um, that belief is not, I mentioned this earlier, it's not just an intellectual assent. Maybe I've said this a bunch at the house, I don't know. It's not like just an agreement to a thing. I, I used the image before of like imagining that, that belief is a bridge over this chasm, and there's a, there's, a, there's a huge difference, and the difference is called belief, biblically, between pointing at the bridge over there and saying, I believe it's there, and I believe it exists, and I believe it holds my weight, versus me actually walking over and standing on the bridge, where I don't even need to tell you whether I believe it or not anymore. I'm literally risking my whole life in the belief that this bridge will hold me up. Biblically, belief is that. When, when, this, when these ideas got translated into Latin later and, and creeds that are often said throughout the history of the church, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, these things, believe in, in Latin literally means I believe into a thing. I, I believe in it. I lean into it and put my whole weight in it and rest upon it. If, if, if Jesus' command is a two-stranded rope, one of those strands is believing like that in Jesus as the Son of God. What's the other strand? Love. Loving God and loving others. John is emphatic in his letter here. If you do not love your brother, you are a liar and the love of God is not in you, he says. That's how big of a deal John understands the fruit of love to be. 
You cannot say that you are following what Jesus has asked of you if you just believe and don't love. Neither can you say you are a Christian if you love people but don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. These things go together. We can never divorce them for the life of a Christian. These things go together. This is how we know love, that Jesus laid his life down for us, so we ought to love others. This is what his command is. Whoever keeps his commands, commandments abides in God and God in him. This whole passage, by the way, is rooted in John's memory of what Jesus said the night he's betrayed. I mean, there's so much language in this section that's almost directly ripped out of his gospel called John, chapters 13 through 16. You might think of John chapter 15 when Jesus tells his disciples to abide in him and hear the word abide shows up again. There's like seven or eight different references here that are overlapping in this case. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. This whole thing's rooted in John's memory of what Jesus said. He says, whoever loves me and obeys my commandments, this is John 14, whoever loves me and obeys my commandments, my father and I will come and make our home with him, Jesus would say. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Okay, so so John at the very end here uh, of our section, he brings up the spirit, which he goes into at length in the next chapter. He talks about the spirit quite a bit. He sort of transitions this idea into the the spirit. But I included this verse here because I wanna take a moment in just a second to talk about the spirit and all this, all right? I wanna get back though real quick to sort of the umbrella topic for our night. So we walk through the passage. Um, Here's what I assume our desires are if we're followers of Christ, that we are looking at all of this to know if God is really with us and for us that many of us want this, and I just find this to exist a lot. We walk around acting confident. We put like, I don't know, on profiles, we'll put Bible verses, we'll get them tattooed somewhere in our body. We have stickers on the back of our cars, on our laptops, on our water bottles. We have all these things that say to the world, I know what I believe. But so many times I'm talking to folks about any number of things, and I, and I, can, I can sense this anxiety that bubbles up. Maybe I've been wrong the whole time. Maybe I'm not really a Christian. Maybe I've been off somewhere. Maybe, uh, uh, and it's just this, this plaguing anxiety. And I'm assuming, although we don't talk about it in the open much, I'm assuming all of you want what I want and every other Christian wants, I think, and that's to know with confidence that God is for us and with us. Can you know that God is for you and with you? And I think, yes, we can. In this passage, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to summarize some of what John is saying in three ways. That, that God has designed for us to know with some confidence that he's for us and with us. The first, and this I hope comes to mind all the time for you, the first is in the knowledge that Jesus laid down his life for us. It always starts there. I said this earlier, faith doesn't start in you. It doesn't. If you're wondering if you really are a Christian or if you can believe in Jesus or if you want to be a Christian or something like that, the very first place that you start is not here or here. It's in, it's in the public historically. It's out there. The very first place we look is what has happened publicly in history for the world to see. And so many of us have left that unexamined. It's okay. I, if you haven't examined it, I, I don't want to shame you right now. I want to invite you to examine it. Because circumstances and questions might come your way and cause you to doubt and wonder, and you might sort of go, man, I don't know if I got the, you know, the, the oomph for all of this. And I, I, okay, do you think there was a guy named Jesus who did what he did, and he died, and he rose from the grave? Well, I don't know, man. I'm talking about my feelings right now. And I'm like, well, that's, that's great, and we got to get there. Like, I want to talk about your feelings. But, like, you can agree that all this stuff happened with Jesus and still decide that you don't want to be a part of what he's doing, you can, you can do that, but where this thing starts is what Jesus did. It starts with what happened outside of your mind and heart and happened in front of history for the world to see. Paul would say, in front of Roman governors and leaders, this didn't happen in a corner of the empire. He's literally standing about to be executed, essentially, and he is standing in chains in front of them at one point, and this person's asking him to make, uh, you know, a case for himself, and as he's telling them about Jesus raising from the dead, he goes, would you like to be a Christian too? (laughs) He literally says that. Uh, The guy says, are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? He goes, not only you, everybody who'd hear me, uh, except for, I want everybody to be like me except for my chains. He actually gets snarky with him in the middle of that scene, you know, Um, but this happened sort of in public. This happened out there for the world to see. We look for feelings rather than Jesus to reveal God to us. 
This is one of the reasons communion, by the way, the Eucharist, uh, you know, your, uh, the Lord's table, whatever, whatever you call it in your church tradition, right? It's one of the reasons it's so important for us because it's a retelling and a reenactment of what Christ has done for us, at least. Some of you believe it's a little more than that. But at the very least, when we participate at the Lord's table in the Eucharist meal, at Mass, right, whatever you guys call it, whatever you call it in your tradition, what we're doing in that time, at least, is remembering and reenacting what Christ has done for us. Jesus Christ's life for us on our behalf. We reenact that every time we do it. We remember that every time we do it. It's why it's so central to the life of God's people. It's one of the reasons why Jesus said, every time you get together, I want you to do this. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this. It's not just a random, like, like, like I don't know, like hoop that we're supposed to jump through or something. Jesus knows that, like, if we don't know that he loved us, we won't be able to love others. Most of the time when we're going about doing things we call love, we're trying to get it, not give it. We're trying to get validation and reassurance from other people, and Jesus doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to be so satisfied in the fact that the God of all creation is for you. So who could stand against you? Why do you act frail and weak when God is on your side? Why? You don't need to defend yourself anymore. You got everything you need. Give it up. He'll keep you safe. Go. And he knows that if we don't believe, if we don't know that he loves us, we can't. And so he says one of the main things he asks us to do, he's like, hey, by the way, when you get together, I want you to remember this. Because you need to know. This is how we know God loves us, by remembering what Christ has done for us. Without Christ, you cannot know with confidence that God is for you. Let me say that again. Without Christ, you cannot know with confidence that God is for you. If you want confidence and assurance, it must start with the knowledge that Jesus laid down his life for us. That's first. You got a friend who's not a Christian? That's where you start, what Jesus did, not how they got to shape up their life. Not that they should go read Genesis or uh, reading the Bible is fantastic. But I mean, what we need to be about is people who talk about what Jesus has done. Not what I'm doing, not what the church on the street's doing, not what the Bible translation says in some weird capacity. I don't really know. We, we gotta point them to Jesus as fast as humanly possible. That's where our hearts need to be reoriented. That's where we should be orienting everybody else's attention. If we are a compass, Jesus is who reorients the needle, okay, to true north. So that's one way. How is it that you can know that God is for you and with you? Friend, if you are not often remembering what Christ has done, it's gonna be hard for you to believe that God is for you and with you. And for some of you, it probably truly, you've just never taken up the task of examining it much. You've never read a gospel account or you've never looked at sort of some critical history thoughts and sort of like, does it even seem viable for me to believe that a man rose from the dead? Do you know that Paul, who wrote like most of the New Testament, said if Jesus did not bodily rise from the dead, bodily, if he did not physically raise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. If you are a Christian, that is a must. Otherwise, you have to cut out half the New Testament and virtually all of the language that you use about Christianity. Because the guy who penned all of that said it's pointless if Jesus isn't raised from the dead. Our faith is in vain. And maybe some of you need to take up the invitation to look into some of the history there or, or meditate on the gospels more or get involved in a church that's doing communion on a regular basis. Something to remember what Christ has done. Second, how else can we know that God is for us and with us? The presence and work of the Holy Spirit. I gotta make this kind of quick and it's a big topic, okay? Um, but, but if you have questions, come find me. I'll be by the door over here at the end of the night. Um, first of all, the Spirit is sent on Jesus' authority. I want to say this first. If we believe in Jesus and ask for the Spirit, Jesus sends his Spirit. And the reason why I'm saying that is because the, the Spirit being sent to you as a Christian is not based on your confidence. It's based on Jesus, which, which is one of the reasons I can trust that it's happening because uh, it's, not, it's not me sort of convincing God to do it or something like this, right? Um, Jesus also told us what to expect from the Spirit of God. Like, we don't have to wonder sort of what the Spirit's about and what the Spirit of God's doing. We should expect specifically a, a, a few things. We should expect the Spirit to remind us of what Jesus said. You can look at John chapter 14, John chapter 15 for these, these two ideas that are coming up here, and then I'll give you the, the other passages for the other stuff. Jesus said the Spirit, when he sends him, the Spirit will remind us of what Jesus said, which incidentally is really hard for the Spirit to do if you've never encountered what Jesus said. So there's an impetus for you to actually discover what Jesus has said so that the Spirit of God can bring that to your mind. Read your Bible, that kind of thing, right? He also said that the Spirit would guide us into truth. 
And it's worth paying attention to how the Spirit is guiding you into truth. I think the Spirit often shows up in those battles where our hearts are contending with us. The Spirit is there. We just begin to see Him better in those moments. Why? Personally, I can't tell you how many times I'm fighting to forgive a person, to love a person, to not get defensive, to to lay down my pride for the sake of another. And my heart begins to condemn me. I, I get this notion of what I ought to do which I think is from the Spirit. And then I'll start to think, yeah, but I think they'll just take advantage of it. I don't think they'll appreciate it or I don't think they'll notice it or I don't want to get hurt more. Boy, that's a vulnerable thing to say. Or whatever. I, might, I start having reasons why I don't want to do it. And then what happens is, is, is all of a sudden I remember Jesus saying something like, uh, you know, the, the parable that he told of the unforgiving servant or, the, or that I'm supposed to leave my gift at the altar if I realize that anybody has a problem with me and I can be involved in reconciling with them, I should go fast. Or or I remember Paul saying that vengeance is the Lord's, not mine, and that I should repay things with kindness and I should outdo people with honor and I should treat them better than me. And the truth from the scripture starts coming to mind and it's very aggravating because what I want to do in this moment is justify walking away and not loving somebody. But there is the Spirit bringing to mind Scripture. Friends, this actually happens. Jesus said it would. If he is who he says he is, you should expect it to happen. If you begin to immerse yourself in the words of God and you're, you're listening to, to teaching from the word of God, you're, however you get it, words uh, in songs or you're talking about Jesus, those kinds of things, you should expect the Spirit of God to bring this stuff to mind. This happens so much in my life. And then the Spirit, of course, when I obey God instead of my heart, what I find is real good truth stuff. And there is so much confidence derived from this. When you let God win some battles in you, there's so much confidence from that. If you want to be assured of God being with you and for you, here's my recommendation. Pay attention to the wars that are going on inside your mind and your heart. Begin to stop and reflect on the battle itself when you're angry at your roommate or your parents or your friend or you're jealous of somebody and pay attention, if it becomes a battle, pay attention. What I suspect you'll find as a Christian is you'll find your own heart giving you justifications and reasons for why you should hold on to anger, why you should continue to resist, why you should move away. But you might also find that the Spirit of God whispering truth from the scriptures. And then see what happens when you let God win some of those battles. The Spirit of God does one other thing. Well, it does a lot of things. <laughs> In this, for this point, I just want to bring up one other thing. The Spirit of God will gift people for the work of ministry. But to see that, you guys need to be in community. God actually has gifted you in ways for so many things for people around you. Sometimes that can be really frustrating in our insecurities because we often want God to gift us for just ourselves. But that's not the way he works. He actually has not made you in such a way that you can save yourself. He has not. But he might have, actually, not might have, he definitely created you in such a way that you can be such a rich blessing to others. But it's really hard to figure out how he's made you if you're, if you're isolated a lot and if you're not known. You must, must, or, or the invitation is before you to enter into a community, to be known and to know others in order that you might actually begin to see some of how you're made and who you're made and how God has equipped you to specifically do unique work in the body. For those of you that are on on, on student internships and doing internships with the house, I suspect that even this far into the semester, not even having had a whole year yet, you've begun to realize that each of you are unique and that there's gifts that you have that not everybody else on on the squad that you're with has and that you need to bring those things to bear in the community. The Spirit of God will remind you of what Jesus said, will guide you into truth, and will gift you for the work of his ministry. If you do not pay attention to those things, it's gonna be hard for you to know that God is with you and for you. And there's one other way that, that we can be assured, and that's obeying God's commands. When we, that sounds so like, dun, dun, dun. Uh, when we obey his commands, um, uh, which are summarized beautifully in loving God and loving others, okay? If you don't love others, let me say it this way, if you don't love others, quite frankly, uh, what John said, the love of God's not in you. Um, <laughs> I want to make that nice, but that's just the way it is. Um, he's emphatic about it. Love your parents, love your enemies. Love your enemies. 
Love and honor the opposite sex. Treat people as you want to be treated. Do not gossip about people. Let your love be genuine. These are specific sort of teased, like, uh, teased out examples of what it looks like to love others. If you do not do these things, you rob yourself of the peace and confidence that you desperately desire. But if you do them, if you love others at the cost of your life, you will, it's not a maybe, you will find evidence of the work of God in you. And I suspect that this is true. I, I'm trying to be really careful here because I'm navigating these very strange waters where I have John saying, if, you, if the love of others is not exhibited in your life, then the love of God is not in you. And that makes me think that I've got, I, I, that's all I can say there. But I, I think I'm also, I'm just trying, I'm just being really um, honest with you guys right now. I also think that there are times that we're fighting and, and we feel called to love others and there's a desire to love others, but we just have significant battles that are going on inside of us and it's hard for us to win. And in that camp, in that category, I just wanna say that so many of us are starved for confidence simply because we've never actually stood on our, run, on our young legs and tried to run the race. You find confidence in the running of it, in the loving of others. If you do not love others, it's going to be very hard for you to believe that God has made you somebody who loves others. It should sound really basic. Would you put up that, that last slide? Just wanna summarize it so you can see it up here. Thanks, Ashley. These are three sources of assurance, right, that I think come out of John here. The knowledge that Jesus laid down his life for us. If you forget this, you cut off your roots. The presence and work of the Holy Spirit. Without this, you cut off the branches and the trunk. And the work of love in our lives. Without this, you cut off the fruit. And it's really, really hard to have confidence that this is some kind of tree if you don't have one of those things. Do you get that? But th this is not overwhelmingly mysterious stuff. I, I, I have this sense that for some of us that might go, man, this is really basic, get on with it. And I go, I meet with enough people in this room to know that many of us are starved for the confidence and the assurance that God is for us and with us. And the invitation, friends, is for you to have the knowledge of God's love for you as exampled in what Jesus has done and reenacted in the sacraments that you begin to pay attention to the spirit of God's work in the battles that go on in your soul and in your heart and in your mind. That you begin to look for how God is reminding you of what Jesus said and leading you into truth and equipping you for the work of his ministry. And then you get to work loving others. Not to earn, for some of you, uh, this is the temptation. You don't love in order to earn favor from God. If you haven't discovered it yet, that never works that way. If I have to produce in order for you to value me, it will never end in confidence, never. Because if I produce something really, really well and then you celebrate me, all that happens in the end is I think I have to keep producing at that level for you to do it again. It will, it will never work that you can love your way into God's favor. John is specifically saying this is the evidence that God has demonstrated favor in us. This is what we look for. If I wanna know if somebody's a Christian, if I wanna know, Jesus said, this is how they'll know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. They will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. This is how God wants to assure us that he is with us and for us. So anyway, this is, this is how I wanna close. In the season of exhaustion and finals and plans and, and uh, maybe rest, probably escape more than rest, uh, and in family dynamics and all this kind of stuff, I, I want you to fight to remember what Jesus has done. I want you to look for the Spirit of God and how he's working in you, and I want you to give thanks when you see the acts of love that God has born out of your life because these are the ways that we know that we can abide in him and he in us. These are the ways we can find the assurance or the reassurance for some of us that we long for. These are the ways that we can know we're in the family of God these are the ways we can recognize Christ and others. God is not trying to hide this from us. He wants us to know he loves us, you guys. Like he literally took on flesh. And, and there's a really crazy story of this virgin girl who had a kid and then that guy was God and we killed him and then he raised from the dead and then he didn't die and saw a bunch, of, it was crazy stuff. Like he, he's not trying to hide. He's trying to make himself known. He wants us to know he loves us and the invitation is open, so draw close. Feel the warmth, let the light shine on you, experience the fellowship around him, he's good. He's with us and he's for us and I pray that you get to know this over the holiday season. If you wanna talk more about it, 
I'll be over by the door. You can find me on some social media site. We also have a team of folks that are leading that prayer huddle this, um, this Saturday, but every single Tuesday night, they're in the back for the last set of worship songs. Um, if you want somebody to pray with you, um, they'd be happy to pray with you and they'll keep whatever you share with them in confidence, all right? Let, let me pray for you and we'll, we'll uh, praise God through song. Um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I ask that you um, receive the praise that we're about to sing well. Um, that you take joy in it. Um, I'm, I'm very aware, Lord, uh, that this stuff that we read is, is and, and have talked about is just fully dependent upon your activity. That you doing what you did and your spirit doing what he does and, um, and the love that comes out of our life needs to come from you. We're told by John himself that we love only because you love. So everything is dependent upon you. So we ask you to move. Just like we ask you for rain, we ask you for the spirit. And just like we ask for fruit from the ground, we ask for fruit in our lives. And so in this room, I'm quite sure um, that in the next five to 10 minutes as we sing, um, that there will be a mix of people singing in confidence and people singing in hope and prayer and other people not singing because they're not sure they can. And um, we have all sorts. I just pray you receive it all and you invite everybody in here into your kingdom that they would come to know that you're for them and with them. And Father, would you help us to love each other? Receive our praise now in Jesus' name. Amen.